What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another exciting episode of Bitcoin and Markets. My name is Ansel Lindner. What I do here is a daily live stream, and I put it out in podcast form. If you want to take part in the live streams, you can follow me on Twitter at Ansel Lindner, or better yet, go to the telegram t.me forward slash Bitcoin and Markets. Also, check out the website bitcoinandmarkets.com. Sign up for the free tier, get notified of all my content, get a free weekly newsletter. And there you can also become a full member and support me for $5 a month and support this unique perspective in Bitcoin. So I have been in Bitcoin for almost 10 years. I have an economics and business background as well as a military career. So I have a unique perspective, a unique outlook. And if you listen to this whole episode today, you'll get a taste of that unique outlook. So I want to thank everyone that supports over there on BitcoinAndMarkets.com. If you're new, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Subscribe, like, share, check out BitcoinAndMarkets.com. Okay, let's get into today's show. Today is December 29th, 2022. Hope you are all doing well out there. Today was uh, Thursday, so at 1230 Eastern, that's my new time to do FedWatch with Bitcoin Magazine. It was uh, kind of fun. Once again, it was just me and CK. Uh, the crew was on break. So the producer, Chris, and their new host, Nolan, they're on holiday break. So it was just me me and CK, just like old times. That's how we started FedWatch was um, just sitting on Zoom, really, and recording and then putting it out separately. So uh, then about, I would say... Let's see, we're on episode 125 of that. So probably about 80 episodes ago. Well, no, let's see. Uh, 60 episodes ago or so, we started doing it with the live stream every week. So just about a year, a little over a year, we've been doing the live streams with Bitcoin Magazine. And it, uh, you know, it's fun. That, that way, everything kind of gets done. I do the notes in the morning. So I, I do some uh, a quick outline with some links or whatever we're going to talk about. And I share that with a CK. And I also put together a slide deck for the live stream so that we can show that on uh, YouTube or Rumble, wherever we're live streaming it. And I did put that link into the Telegram channel this week. I usually don't do that, but, um, you know, uh, I thought maybe we could go over some of the charts or something in this live stream. I was look, I was digging up, trying to find some other things to talk about. And I saw that was the Zoltan Posnar, he put out a new post. So I was going to read through that. Maybe not the whole thing, but read through at least some of that. And then there was one more thing that I just posted, which was a Mish article. And he is a guy I've been reading for decades now kind of back with being a gold bug uh, was when I really listened to him because he still has not embraced Bitcoin at all. But he still has some interesting things. At least he's almost like a counter indicator for me or he gives me examples to bring up, uh, which is what this piece is about, bringing up uh, how people actually still think and where people are getting things wrong. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so maybe we'll go through that as well. If we have time, I don't want to make this like a huge, long hour long live stream, but Hey, if I get going and you guys have some comments at the end and, you know, I'm not against making it that long. It's just that, uh, you know, usually 
But one reason why I like to try to keep these a little shorter, like half hour, 45 minutes, is because my host for the podcast, when I put this out on the podcast version, uh, I have a limit on how many megabytes that I can upload. Uh, I did recently extend that limit because when I was doing these live streams and putting them out daily, I hit that limit. Uh, so I don't want to do hour long live streams every day because I'll still hit the limit if I'm even on the extended plan. So anyway, that's that's a little bit uh, background information, I guess. I don't know. But all right, let's let's do that. Let's open up the slide deck. And I'll post these actually individually if I can. Well, I don't know if I can do that because Google Docs doesn't like to copy and paste into Telegram. So you guys can just open up that link if you're on Telegram. Of course, if you're listening on the podcast version the next day to this, you guys can go to the post for this episode, which is episode 291. So bitcoinandmarkets.com forward slash E291. And I will link all of the charts that I talk about. And I'll even put in the links of the other articles that I'm going to read here in a minute. So let's take a look at the Bitcoin chart. And really what we talked about on FedWatch, it was a good show. We did a year in review. So a lot of these charts are just year, you know, year to date charts on TradingView. But on this Bitcoin, the first chart I put in there, the, the big events, Terra Luna, Celsius and FTX. Of course, there was other ones, BlockFi, Voyager, uh, what is it, Three Arrows Capital. There's some other big ones that happened, but uh, the three biggest were these ones that are really associated with the big drops in the Bitcoin price. So I, I pointed those out. And I'll say it again. If you take away just those like 16 days, 16 days this year, the big red candles from these drops, Bitcoin would be actually a little bit higher. And I probably should do that, take those out. And there's a tool on TradingView where you can do like a ghost ghost uh, pattern. You can copy a certain pattern and paste it. And I should paste those end to end and see where we would be at. But I bet we would be near an all-time high um, if we didn't have these big drops because, you know, they, they dominate the chart for this year for Bitcoin. Right now, uh, we're kind of, sliding down a little bit and it was it we did did a little back and forth on FedWatch 2 about how CK always used to be the perma bull and I always used to be a little bit more conservative like so if you go back to early episodes of FedWatch I'm like saying hey you know we're at uh 50,000 let's be a, let's be a little conservative here you know we could consolidate that that's not anything to be worried about if we pull back 30% and CK was much more bullish than I was then. And now he is much more bearish than I am. And I'm saying, well, we're good Lord. Where's the bottom here? We got, we got to hit the bottom soon. And in the cycle timing here, this is getting time is getting very short to find a bottom and make some sort of turn. So anyway, that was a little dynamic that we had today. That's the Bitcoin chart. What was some other chart I would like to pull up? Uh, we had a long discussion on CPI. So if you are following along on the slide deck, you can go to slide number 10. And this is where I was uh, just pointing out the month over month versus the year over year CPI. And the month over month, you know, it went from uh, way above 1%. I, on the on FedWatch, I said 1%, but it's it was like 
1.3% month over month in June. And it went to zero in July. And back then I was like, we just hit the brick wall. That's why year over year doesn't matter because that was the change. That was the, the instantaneous slowdown in the economy or instantaneous change to the price uh, patterns that is not represented in year over year inflation. You know, it's going to take a whole month. It's going to take a whole year guys, because think about that. It was trending up, trending up, trending up. It hit 1.3% month over month. And then it dropped to zero. It's going to take a whole year to really feel that on the year over year. That's why you need to look at the month over month. Anyway, then on the next chart, on slide number 11, if you guys are following along on this, the, the deck here, uh, this is the year over year, but I go all the way back to the 90s. And uh, on FedWatch, I said, hey, look, look at this recession and great financial crisis, okay? What did we start doing then? We started QE, right? And I can even tie this into the M2 chart, which we'll talk about here when we talk with about Mish's article and we talked about M2, I think on the last episode here of the live stream. And what what we started QE in the great financial crisis. That's when M2, that's when all these other things really took off, right? Well, if you look at this long-term CPI chart, the lowest period of CPI is since the great financial crisis. The lowest. And then it just so happens we closed on the freaking global economy for a year. And what happens to prices? Then all of a sudden we get higher CPI. So I don't understand how people can think there's anything to do with money printing here. I mean, there is that small effect. And I'll say it once again for new people that haven't heard me say this before. But with the fiscal spending and the stimmy checks and stuff, that is not money printing either. But it does have an effect on money printing because it pulls demand forward and it tricks the economy into thinking there's a boom going on. And so people will go out and borrow and banks will lend more, you know, because it tricks the economy. There's this psychological effect of, oh, we're in boom times now. Let's go out and make more loans and do more things with our business and, you know, open up that new assembly line that we wanted to open up in our factory and yada, yada, yada. That's what tricks the economy to doing. And that is growth and inflation. When you have credit-based money, all growth is equal to inflation. It's an identity. If you have growth, you have inflation. And basically at the same levels. So anyway, that is the effect, the inflationary effect that we saw. Uh, There was some of that, okay? It wasn't even that big because the overriding effect that is dominating these prices and dominating CPI is supply chains. It's the the supply shocks and the reverberations from those supply shocks. But we have peak CPI and we're coming down. Anyways, okay, uh, that's enough with those charts. I just thought it'd be interesting for you guys to get a link to the slide deck to see how the sausage is made maybe in the background. Okay, let's go on to that Mish article actually before I get to Zoltan because I kind of want to, since we're on CPI and we're talking about inflation, we'll do that here. Okay, so this is the article. I did post it in the Telegram. It's going to be in the show notes. And the title is, Is Inflation Always and Everywhere a Monetary Phenomenon? All right, here we go. Think carefully about my question and the measures you use to define inflation. 
boom, right off the bat, I like this article because that is what I have been saying for four freaking years here. Before that, I was all on the same bandwagon with Mish. I was on the inflationista bandwagon. But then I started to think carefully about and question how I measure inflation and how I'm defining that. And that's, that's his first line. So, okay, let's see, Mish. Let's see what you got, buddy. Have you opened your eyes yet? All right, let's go. Milton Friedman famously said, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. Most people parrot Friedman because the quote sounds good. The actual quote is, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon in the sense that it is and can be produced only by more rapid increase in the quantity of money than in output. Okay, we'll see if this is what he's going on here, because what he's going to try to say is that CPI is inflation. Okay, and since CPI is inflation, it must be measuring money printing. And since M2 is money printing or shows the money supply, then when M2 is coming down, then CPI has to come down. So you see all of those broken links in there, in that thinking process, in that thought process. There's a bunch of broken links. First off, CPI does not measure inflation. It measures prices. Prices go up and down for many, many reasons. Second, M2 does not measure money. M2 does not measure money. All right, let's continue to see if that's exactly what he's going to say. Um, so he's talking about M2 and he has, he has listed the five, the last five weekly readings. So, uh, so the last five weeks started 0.3%, then they went down 0%, then negative 0.1%, then negative 0.4%, then negative 0.7%. So it's an obvious trend downward and it's pretty rapid. If these are weekly changes, you know, that means in one month, it dropped from zero to 0.7%. That's pretty big. All right. If you insist that increases in money supply constitute inflation, then you must also insist that we are in a period of deflation right now. No, that is wrong, Mish. That is wrong, Mish. Because only if you consider M2 money supply. Yes. So if you insist... Let me fix this sentence for you, Mish. If you insist that increases in money supply constitute inflation and that M2 measures money supply, then you must also insist that we are in a period of deflation right now. Now, do I agree with this statement? Uh, I, I tend to think that we are not, right now, we're not in a period of deflation, but the overriding climate is that of a deflationary pressure. Think about the business cycle. So at the beginning of the business cycle, there is uh, inflationary pressure. You know, there's um, lots of people take out new loans. Business expands. There's lots of growth. And remember, growth and inflation are the same in a credit-based system. That that is the overriding force is an inflationary pressure. However, at the end of a credit uh, business cycle, a credit cycle, you get deflationary pressure where business starts slowing down. Credit expansion starts slowing down. 
And if you're not growing, you're dying if you're a credit bubble. And so the overriding pressure is towards deflation. But the powers that be can kick the can down the road by doing what I call balance balance sheet magic and curing those insolvent balance sheets through bailouts. But just curing the balance sheet does not make people, uh, does not cure people's psychological feeling that we're in a depression or we're in a recession or whatever. They actually look at that and be like, oh my God, you needed a bailout? We're not doing business with you. Ooh, this makes us a little uneasy to open up this new line in our factory, this new assembly line, uh, this, you know, whatever type of business expand uh, expansion of business that you want to do. It makes me uneasy doing this now because I know this really important person in, in my orbit got a bailout. Are they in that much trouble? Are they insolvent? You know, are, is their management that bad that they couldn't keep their business profitable? Is there, are the uh, economy that they're plugged into, is it so bad that they can't make their ends meet? Because I know George, I've been doing business with George for a long time. He's my supplier. And if he's having trouble, that must mean that the economy is really, really bad. You know, so just because you give a bailout doesn't mean that people psychologically become bullish again, that my balance sheet is fixed through legal bailouts and legal terms and whatever, that all of a sudden, boom, we're going to be bullish again. It doesn't fix anything. You know what fixes stuff? Seeing people fail and then seeing new blood come in. That's what makes people bullish. Seeing some new ideas, seeing some new entrepreneurs, seeing some real excitement. That's what makes people bullish. But you can't get there if you constantly bail out the old system. And the reason why they have to do that is because it's credit-based money and it will go to zero. That was the problem. The problem was going to credit-based money. So anyway, just to go back to Mish here, Okay, deflation, we're in a period of deflation right now. No, we are actually in a little bit of a reflationary bounce at the moment. You can see this in Q3 GDP. Q4 GDP will also be positive. We see this, this in the dollar weakening. When the dollar turns around and goes back the other way and gets stronger into its and forms that new range that we're looking at, then we'll be getting into deflationary pressure. So right now, no. Even though M2 is negative, oh my God, guys, I am going against orthodoxy. M2 is negative, the change in M2 is negative. How can I not think there's deflation right now? And I'm a deflationist. No, because you need to be able to look at the numbers and see what's going on, okay? You can't use the same old playbook that has been wrong for decades and apply it today and then, you know, call somebody that's using a new playbook Wrong. I, I don't know how, if that made any sense, but uh, yeah, let's continue with this. Uh, does it feel like it? I have been waiting for this moment for a long time just to ask these questions. I was sure money supply growth would go negative because the Fed's balance sheet unwind would shrink money supply as measured by M2. 
as measured by M2. That's the important part, right? It, because it's not really shrinking the money supply. Uh, quoting Friedman, people love that Friedman quote, but just ask anyone, how do you measure money? Is it M1, M2, MZM, or M3? Expect blank stares. Then ask them how they measure inflation. If it's by prices, not increases in money supply, then their answers are inconsistent. What about velocity? At the time Friedman made his claim, he believed the velocity of money was relatively constant or stable in a narrow band. Velocity was relatively stable then. It's, it isn't now. Few are aware of the major difference. Yeah, but velocity is, I've talked about that here on the show before. Changing definitions. In 1959, the Webster Dictionary definition of inflation was an increase in money supply and credit. Apologies offered, but I cannot find that reference. All right. The Fed, academia, and governments managed to change the definition to hide asset and credit bubbles. The Fed seldom, if ever, discusses money supply or total credit. That is on purpose. One second, my kids are screaming. All right, sorry about that. Yeah, the Fed doesn't discuss money supply or total credit because they can't measure it. All right, let's continue. Total credit market debt owed, that's some data that's uh, collected by the Fed, uh, is $92 trillion. Amazing. Data is through the third quarter of 2022. How the heck is that supposed to be paid back? From uh, 2006 to 2009, using a credit view of inflation, I confidently predicted deflation and it happened. Will it happen again? I say yes, but when is the key but when is the key question? This is not 2008. We do not have the degree of housing liar loans and people walking away from debt, but we do have masses of zombie corporations that will go bust and all their debt with them. That's one hell of a deflation flashback to the housing bubble bust. We had an unprecedented four consecutive quarters of declining credit year over year and a fifth quarter that was flat. flat. <clears throat> Coupled with an enormous asset bubble bust, that's deflation by any sensible measure. Okay, so I actually agree with him on the second half when he's talking about this. Uh, at the time, however, I was routinely mocked for my deflation take because M2 was still positive. Well, now it isn't. Is the U.S. in a period of deflation right now? The answer depends on what one means by inflation, deflation, and money. If you insist on a M2 measure, there you go, there is only one possible answer, and that is yes. If you point at the CPI or grocery prices today while pointing out M2 yesterday, what does that say about you? If you view things from the uh, perspective of asset bubbles, then heck yes, deflation has started. It also has a long way to go. If you look at the things from a credit perspective, you have a much better leg to stand on if you say there is still inflation, deflation in the batter's box. Um, it's asset bubble and credit deflations that are the most damaging. Of course, it's periods of credit inflation and cheap interest rates that sponsor asset bubbles. To control inflation, the Fed has popped another asset bubble, largely of its own making. Deflation via another credit bubble bust is in the batter's box. The Fed could pivot if it causes, causes a credit event, but how low will asset prices go first? Regardless, if you think either M2 or the CPI is the thing that matters most, you are wrong no matter what the Fed says. 
man, I'm, I'm really liking this, uh, really liking this second half. The credit picture is more important than either of them. So by def deflating asset bubbles, the latter is what led to a credit bust in the housing bubble period, and it can easily happen again. Meanwhile, the Fed is hell-bent on destroying asset prices to control inflation. Good luck with that. How did we get here? Uh, why the Fed is in this position for, oh God, why the Fed is in this position for the third time since 2000, question mark. The short answer is the Fed is clueless about what inflation is, how to measure it, and what's really important. Oh man, I, I think he's made some changes in his opinion. This, this, is, this reminds me of Michael Pettis. I mean, Michael Pettis was a, not a China bear for years. And then all of a sudden, in the last maybe six months to a year, he's really turned bearish on China. And Mish, I, I do not remember saying anything like this. So maybe I've been reading them wrong for a long time, but uh, that is, that's very interesting. The Fed also looks at consumer inflation. It ignored asset and credit bubbles in a perpetually foolish effort to promote routine consumer price inflation of 2%. But the Fed can only make cheap uh, money cheap. It cannot control where money goes. The money, credit expansion, went into assets, especially housing. All right. All right. Well, this goes on quite a bit longer. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but you guys can check it out. Um, very interesting. If Mish is making this, this shift to deflation now. Let's go on to Zoltan Posnar. Hope I'm not losing you guys with all of my crazy crazy takes on this stuff but uh so zoltan i haven't read the piece but there was this tweet that had the images and so i'm going to read off those i did post those in the telegram uh, of course they will be in the show notes for people listening on the podcast app but here we go this is zoltan posnar he's a interest rate strategist or whatever at at credit suisse he he is in with repos and interest rates and, and swaps and, and all that kind of stuff at, over at Credit Suisse. And of course, they are having major, major problems this year. But anyway, that's that's just where he works. He's also kind of this uh, become this cult guru um, on many in many circles over the last couple of years. He's made some really good calls, especially back, I would say um, 2019 might have been the first time I heard of him because he was really good at uh, predicting what was going on with the repo market at the time. I mean, that's his job, right? It's the repo market. But he, he now he is, the, over the last year, he has really gone into geopolitics. And I think that's a whole different ball game. But uh, let's see. And he is a big China bull. Thucydides trap type person, rising China and falling dollar. Um, so let's let's get into this. This is his kind of report. I think I think he does these at least quarterly, but maybe they're monthly. This is dated December 27th, 2022. And the title of this report is War and Commodity Encumbrance. War encumbers commodities. A recurring theme in my dispatches this year has been that in a moment when the world is going from unipolar to multipolar, the actions of heads of state are far more important than the actions of central banks. That is because heads of state lead, their actions affect inflation, 
and central banks merely follow by hiking rates to clean up. Central banks will be behind the curve in this game. And if investors read only the speeches of central banks, but not statesmen, they will be even more behind the curve. The multipolar world order is being built not by the G7, uh, but by the G7 of the East, the BRICS, which is a G5, really. But because of BRICS expansion, I took the liberty to round up. The special relationship between China and Russia has a financial agenda to it. And what President Xi and President Putin say about the future of money, that is, the future they envision, matters for the future of the U.S. dollar and the liquidity of the U.S. Treasury market. Their actions are forging something new. Bretton Woods 3 is slowly taking shape. And in light of developments to date, my motto for Bretton Woods 3, our commodities, your problem remains apt. So he, yeah, he has this Bretton Woods 3 idea where they're going to, at least from what I remember, is that they're going to back like a BRICS currency with uh, commodities, like oil or something, and that Russia and China are going to be the center of at least a regional power. Um, I don't know how you take, well, let's just continue reading because I could go on and on about this. President Xi's visit with Saudi and the GCC leaders marks the birth of the Petro Yuan and a lead in China's growing encumbrance of OPEC Plus's oil and gas reserves. With the China GCC summit, China can claim to have built a special relationship, not only with the plus sign in OPEC Plus, but with Iran and all of OPEC Plus. Not really. I posted a video in uh, Telegram a couple weeks ago. It's from that Lay's Real Talk, and she goes through the exact points that went on at the Xi uh, Saudi summit. And here's just like a very kind of symbolic example of what happened there is they sent fighters to escort Xi's plane as he was coming to Riyadh. Uh, Those were American planes with American trained fighter pilots. You know, like that's a slap in the face to Xi first off. Second off, like that just shows like how far this, just because you make one trip to Saudi Arabia and a few of the big claims that they were touting that they were going to make before the meeting, they didn't make. And they released this list of like 34 points that they agreed on, but they were kind of minor points. So it was like not the, it wasn't the glowing success that is now being put out there about this Petro Yuan. This has nothing to do with that. This was kind of almost a failure. It wasn't necessarily a failure, but it was a tiny first step. It was a tiny first step in the direction towards some sort of Petro Yuan, which it isn't going to work anyway. I mean, the petrodollar is kind of fake. It's kind of a lie anyway. So the Petro Yuan really doesn't matter. It, it's, it's kind of fake and it's, it's not a real thing. All right, so... Uh, President Xi's visit was the first, was the very first China-Arab states summit in history. In history, guys. In history. And now, all of a sudden, they're going to 
flip the switch and the dollar's going to die and there's going to be a Petro Yuan. The first China-Arab state summit in history. And they were escorted by American planes and American trained pilots. And now they're going to flip the switch to Petro Yuan. Just get that through your mind how dumb that is. All right. And echoes FDR's meeting with King Abdul Aziz Saud on Valentine's Day in 1945 aboard an American cruiser, the USS Quincy. No, it's not. Because 1945, the U.S. dominated the world. The U.S. had military control of the world. 1945. I mean, yeah, the Iron Curtain, maybe no, but most of 50% of global GDP and probably at least 50% of like war fighting capability. We, we had nukes. Russia didn't even have nukes yet at that time. The disparity of power between FDR in 1945 and Xi today, which is presiding over a failing communist regime or at least a sliding communist regime is completely different. It's completely different. (laughs) You know, the U S had a long history of projecting power. You can go back to like um, the Barbary pirates and stuff in the 18th century. We were sending uh, Marines to the Mediterranean to put down Barbary pirates that were stopping trade in the Mediterranean and like France couldn't stop it. Italy couldn't stop it. Spain couldn't stop it. And the U S brought their Navy from this very fledgling country and put down these Barbary pirates. I mean, I think probably the French and they're being cut in on something they, they wanted them to continue, but like that, the U S has been projecting power by 1945. The U S had been projecting power for a hundred years over 100 years, right? 150 years. And they just won World War II. Or Valentine's Day, not yet, but, you know, uh, they won the war in Europe and they were finishing up the war in the Pacific. It's much, much different than what just happened with Xi and Saudi. Hey, what's up, guys? Just breaking in here on the edit. I wanted to add a little bit more color to this um, situation or comparison that Zoltan is making between 1945 FDR and Saudi Arabia and 2022 Xi and Saudi Arabia. Um, So I wanted to read just a little bit about the history here, early history of Saudi Arabia, and show that, you know, this was a very, it's a very different situation to today. Okay. Uh, And remember, as I'm reading this, remember that Xi was escorted by U.S. fighter planes with U.S. trained pilots. Okay, so uh, King Saud, uh, the founder of Saudi Arabia, developed close ties with the United States after unifying his country in 1928. He set about gaining international recognition. Great Britain was the first country to recognize Saudi Arabia as an independent state, as the British had uh, provided protection of uh, Saudi territories from the Turks for many years. In May 1931, the U.S. officially recognized Saudi Arabia by extending full diplomatic recognition. At the same time, uh, Saud granted a concession to the U.S. company Standard Oil of California, allowing them to explore for oil in the country's eastern province, the big oil-producing area that is still producing oil today. 
The company gave the Saudi government 35,000 pounds and also paid assorted rental fees and royalty payments. Uh, in November 1931, a treaty was signed by both nations, to, uh, which included favored nation status. So that's 31, long before uh, 45. Uh, the U.S. sent a resident ambassador in 1943. The relationship between Saudi Arabia and the United States uh, was economically strengthened in 1933 when Standard Oil was given concession to explore the Saudi Arabia lands for oil. Okay. Uh, World War II. As the U.S.-Saudi relationships relationship was growing slowly, World War II was beginning its first phase, with Saudi Arabia remaining neutral. The U.S. was deeply involved in World War II, and as a result, U.S.-Saudi relations were put on the back burner. This negligence left Saudi Arabia vulnerable to attack. Italy, an Axis power, bombed the oil-producing region, crippling Saudi Arabia's oil production. This attack left uh, the King Saud scrambling to find an external power that would protect the country, fearing further attacks that would most likely cease the country's oil production and flow of pilgrims coming into Mecca. Okay, as World War II progressed, the United States began to believe that Saudi oil was of strategic importance. As a result, in the interest of national security, the U.S. began to push for greater control over the region. On February 16, 1943, so this is two years before this Valentine's Day thing that the Zoltan is talking about, uh, FDR declared that, quote, the defense of Saudi Arabia is vital to the defense of the United States, end quote, thereby making possible the extension of the Lend-Lease program to the kingdom. Later that year, the president approved the creation of a state-owned petroleum reserve company, okay, However, the plan was met with opposition and ultimately failed. Roosevelt continued to court the government. However, on February 14, 1945, he met the king on board the USS Quincy, discussing topics such as the country's security relationship and the creation of a Jewish uh, country in the Mandate of Palestine. So, very long history with the United States. The United States took vital interest in them. They, the main backdrop to this was protection protection of the Saudi royal family and their control of the region. So think about that when we're talking about Zoltan here. He doesn't, he the title of this is war. There's war in the title, but he doesn't even talk about security once. All right, let's get back into it. So let me, let's continue. Fixed income investors should care not just because the invoicing of oil in Ramimbi will hurt the dollar's might, but also because commodity encumbrance means more inflation for the West. Here are the key parts of President Xi's speech at the China GCC summit. All emphasis with orange underlines are mine. All right, so in... The next three to five years, China is ready to work with GCC countries in the following priority areas. First, setting up a new paradigm of all-dimensional energy cooperation, where China will continue to import large quantities of crude oil on a long-term basis from GCC countries and purchase more LNG. We will strengthen our cooperation in the upstream sector engineering services, as well as downstream storage, transportation, and refinery. 
the Shanghai Petroleum and Natural Gas Exchange Platform will be fully utilized for RMB settlement in oil and natural gas. And we could start currency swap cooperation and advance the uh, CBDC bridge project. Okay. Now, before I let Zoltan dissect Xi's comments, notice they didn't say the word protection or security in that. Because how could they secure those supply lines? They couldn't. That's a huge problem and a big difference between FDR in 1945 and Xi in 2022. All right, let's dissect President Xi's comments bit by bit and color them with other pieces of information as we go along. First, what is the duration of this theme? It's pretty short. In the words of Xi, the next three to five years. In market terms, that means that five years forward, five-year inflation break-evens should be discounting a world in which oil and gas is invoiced not only in dollars but also renminbi, and in which some oil and gas is not available for the West at low prices and in dollars because they are being, they have been encumbered by the East. Okay, like he's totally saying that the market prices are wrong and it's not really a good idea like the bond market is always right have you heard that term zoltan you work with interest rates the bond market is always right and if they haven't priced this in yet it's probably because it's not going to be a big deal remember it, it it just smells and it sounds a lot like the bri the belt and road initiative was supposed to change the goddamn planet china was rising and they were going to control everything all the supply chains and all the supply lines and this was gonna the new world what's come of that nothing a bunch of fat wasted money is what's come of that so three to five years i mean maybe the market saying china didn't pull through on the belt and road china is doing really crappy with their covid stuff they're doing really crappy with their real estate market. They're doing really crappy with the civil unrest and the protests. You know, they're just doing really bad. And they've had this long 20-year trend of lower growth. And now they're down to 2 3% growth in 2022, maybe. So, no, the, the market is looking at China as it's a decline. It's in decline. It's not taken seriously. That's why the bond market hasn't changed. Not because they're not pricing it in, because they're pricing in more than you're talking about here. But let's continue. But it does not appear that break-even expectations reflect anything like that. My sense is that the market is starting to realize that the world is going from unipolar to multipolar politically. But the market has yet to make the leap that in the emerging multipolar world order, cross-currency bases will be smaller commodity bases will be greater and inflation rates in the West will be higher. Okay. First off, I don't like that he uses the blanket West because Europe is in a much different position than the United States. You know, the United States has every single natural resource. I think that the U S could be completely self-sufficient in everything. The only reason why we're not like in rare earths and, uranium and 
stuff like that is because we don't want to do it here because it's pollution. It's really nasty stuff, but that doesn't mean we couldn't. Um, that just means that places that are doing it are taking on a lot of externalities that we don't want to take on, you know? Um, but yeah, I, I do kind of agree with this though. When he says we're going from a unipolar to a multipolar uh, world politically, I agree with that. I st- I didn't want to agree with that at first. Like this, I'm talking like two, three years ago when this, when I was talking about the Thucydides trap and all that, um, I was like, no, we're not going to a multipolar world. It's going to be a unipolar world. But the, the way I describe it now is that it's going to be a multi-regional world, not necessarily a multipolar world. Because I think the, the U.S. will become more dominant than it is. The thing is that the one reason why the U.S. is as dominant as it is right now is not because of the U.S., it's because of the international institutions that it's set up. But if you take like just the U.S. and you strip away NATO, you strip away the alliances with the EU, you strip away its domination of the IMF, which is headquartered in Washington, D.C., and the U.N., which is headquartered in New York City. And you take away all of these international organizations, like the actual sole, lone, naked power or naked influence of the United States is not as big as we think today. You know, it's a 10, 20% player in the world, not a 50% player like it feels like because it's the headquarters of all of these international institutions and alliances. But in the future, the, the, power of the alliances like nato and the un and the imf and all these things those are going to decrease drastically if not go away like the imf might just go away uh, i don't think the un will go away but it's it's possible i mean if russia and china leave the un like what is there what is it there for you know um and and nato might break down i mean <laughs> turkey and greece are not the friendliest of neighbors and they're both NATO members. And I don't think they could survive. NATO could survive that kind of conflict. Plus there's stuff like Poland and Hungary and their proximity to Ukraine and how that, that all works that, that is bringing up questions about NATO. And I mean, they're just draining their stockpiles of weapons right now. Uh, So, I mean, NATO could die too. So the, the power of these, international institutions and that the u.s kind of quarterbacks is going away but the sole naked power of the united states is going to rise i hope that makes sense so the u.s is going to going to be the largest individual power by far by far in the future looking forward is it's not going to that's why you have to have people have to think in their mind oh my god russia and china they're going to be buddy buddy and they're going to be this great superpower Well, yeah, you have in your mind, you always have to combine two other great powers, then they will become a superpower. But you don't do that with the United States, right? You think, well, the United States just has the ability to be a superpower. So that is, that's how I would frame it. Not so simplistic as what he's framing it here. It's multi-regional world, multipolar world, however you want to say that. But uh, yeah, okay, let's continue. Inflation traders should be paranoid not complacent as andy grove said only the paranoid survive but when i asked 
a small group of inflation traders over dinner in London this summer about how the market, they, come up with a five-year, five-year forward break-even, I did not sense any degree of paranoia in their answers. There is no top-down or bottom-up work that we do to come up with our estimates. We take central banks' inflation targets as a given, and the rest is liquidity. That's a quote, he said. Inflation break-evens do not seem to price in geopolitical risk. Second, paradigm. In a new paradigm of all-dimensional energy cooperation, in a symbolic word, uh, is a symbolic word. The meeting between FDR and King Saud was a new paradigm too. The U.S.'s security guarantees for the kingdom for access to affordable oil supplies. Over time, the paradigm boiled down to this. The U.S. imported oil and paid for it with U.S. dollars, which Saudi Arabia spent on treasuries and arms and recycled the leftovers as deposits in U.S. banks. In the wake of the OPEC shocks of the 70s, that recycling of petrodollars led to the Latin American debt crisis in the 1980s. The old paradigm worked until it didn't. The U.S. is now less reliant on oil from the Middle East, owing to the shale revolution, while China is the largest importer of oil. Pretty weak position. Security relations are in flux. Saudi holds the U.S. Treasury, uh, holds U.S. treasuries and bank deposits. They are, they are, those totals are down as the kingdom went from funding the United States government and banks to owning equity in firms. And the Saudi crown said recently that the kingdom could reduce its investment in the U.S. Similar patterns hold in other GCC countries. The new paradigm between China, Saudi Arabia, and GCC countries is fundamentally different from the one struck aboard the USS Quincy. Naturally so, as China is now dealing with a rich Middle East, whereas FDR was dealing with a Middle East that had just started to develop with wealth, power, and priority shift. Back then, liquidity and security were more important than an emerging region. Today, equity and respect are more important for what has become an imminent region. Now, this is not true, I would say. I mean, at least it's not wholly true because I tell you what, Saudi and Qatar, they are terrified of Iran. Terrified. That is why we are there. The, the U.S. is there to protect these countries against the Shiites. The Sunnis being the Saudis, they're the most violent sect, but the, the Sunnis uh, protected against the Shiites. You know, one reason why there was problems in Syria is because the Ba'ath government is Shiite. So the Sunnis have no problem funding ISIS, which are Sunni Muslims going against the Shiite governments. This was a proxy war. It was a proxy war. If the U.S. goes away, Iran can dominate the Persian Gulf. Dominate it. Not, not even close. Not even close. So, no, it's, they're not gone from liquidity and security to equity and, res, or, uh, yeah, equity and respect. They are still in the same damn thing. They need security, guys. The Strait of Hormuz, that's a small thing. The, the Iranians could easily disrupt any sort of flow 
out of the Persian Gulf. They could disrupt any of the pipelines that they built through Oman. They can disrupt all that. So this is, it's not as easy as what Zoltan is saying. It's not as uh, kind of different, maybe, as Zoltan is saying. It's still, they still have at their core. I mean, just think of this. In a world where international rules and regulations are breaking down, security becomes of greater concern, you know? And if you're losing your biggest bodyguard, that's why I think it's kind of silly to think that Saudi would give up on a, on the U.S. to shake hands and go 100% with, with China. That's just, China has no way to protect them. Zero. All right. Um, that is what China offered. All dimensional energy cooperation means not just taking oil for cash and arms, but investing in the region in the downstream sector and leveraging the regional know-how for cooperation in the upstream sector. Okay. Furthermore, Xi's all-dimensional energy cooperation also means working in cooperation with the localized uh, production of new energy equipment. Put differently, oil for development, crowded out oil for arms. And the Belt and Road Initiative met Saudi Arabia's vision 2020 or 2030 in a big win-win. Oh my God. Let me read that, that last sentence again. Put differently, oil for development, crowded out oil for arms. The Belt and Road Initiative met Saudi Arabia's Vision 2030 in a big win-win. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. So, see, he's just saying here. I mean, Zoltan thinks that we live in a peaceful world. Does he not see what's going on? Very close to the border in a Muslim country. Very close to the border of Saudi Arabia. I mean, it's on the other side of Iraq. But with the Turks and the Syrians and the Kurds, does he not see the protests happening in Iran and the protests happening in Pakistan and what's going on with the Taliban in Afghanistan? Civil unrest is spreading. Violence is spreading. Yet Zoltan thinks they're going from oil for arms to oil for development? Some of the most violent people in the world? No way. No way. I mean, maybe in their dreams, this is what they want. But that's not what's going to happen. The minute there's some sort of, uh, you know, increase in tensions in the Persian Gulf, like Iran says, no cutter. We get all of that natural gas in the Persian Gulf. What are you going to do about it? Your big daddy U.S. Navy is gone. Fifth Fleet's gone, buddy. What are you going to do now? This is our gas. Wow. Boom. Now it's all of a sudden oil for arms again, and who's going to protect them? So no. No, this, Saudi's not going to do this. I mean, if they do, it's incredibly dumb. It's not going to be successful. All right, let's, let's go on to the next page here. Let's see, is this the last page? This is taking longer than I thought. Maybe I'm just a, a chatterbox. That's my, my wife says, I, I, like I said, oh, real quick, honey. She's like, it's not going to be real quick. Uh, anyway, let's go. Uh, third, the new paradigm will not be funded with U.S. dollars. President Xi noted that the Shanghai Petroleum and Natural Gas Exchange will be fully will be fully utilized for RMB settlement in oil and gas trade. President Xi's comments that 
quote, China will continue to import large quantities of crude oil on a long-term basis from GCC countries and purchase more LNG, end quote, underscores the gravity of the underlined quote, combined with the two basically uh, combined, the two basically say that China, already the largest buyer of oil and gas from GCC countries, will buy even more in the future and wants to pay for it all in RMB over the next three to five years. <laughs> I mean, it's just wishful thinking that. Okay, again, think of the timing of the statement in a diplomatic sense. President Xi's communication uh, communicated his message on RMB invoicing, not during the first day of his visit when he met only the Saudi leadership, but during the second day of his visit when he met the leadership of all the GCC countries to impart signal GCC oil flowing east plus RMB invoicing equals the dawn of the Petro Yuan. Good morning. Oh, brother. Given the scope of priority areas in which China plans to work with GCC countries, the sale of clean energy infrastructure, big data, and cloud computing centers, G, uh, 5G and 6G projects, and cooperation in smart manufacturing and space exploration, as per Xi's speech, there will be many avenues through which GCC countries will be able to uh, decomunate. Is that the word? Decumulate. Anyway, the RMB they earn from selling oil and gas to China. And if, perish the thought, any GCC country were to accumulate some surplus cash in non-convertible RMB, just as Xi, Xi's plane was landing in Riyadh, the PBOC revealed that in 2022, it had restarted gold purchases with Gusto. Why do China's gold purchases matter in the context of RMB settlement? Because at the 2018 BRICS summit, China launched an RMB-denominated oil futures contract on the Shanghai International Energy Exchange. And since 2016 and 17, the renminbi has been convertible to gold on the Shanghai and Hong Kong gold exchanges, respectively. Not a bad deal, this renminbi. Paraphrasing Forrest Gump. Okay, first off, well, how has that helped the RMB thus far? All right, so 2016 and 17, they, they announced that it would, or so, no, wait, 2016 was Shanghai when they could convert the RMB to gold. 2017 was Hong Kong. How many years ago was that? Six and five, respectively. Yet somehow in three to five years, the RMB is going to go from, 1% of international payments to how many percent <laughs> when it hasn't mattered with the already it's so their first, the first step of their plan was to get the RMB from 0.001% of international settlement to 0.1% of international settlement. Yay. I mean, come on, give me a break. Give me a break. Nobody wants the RMB. Nobody wants the RMB. Nobody wants to hold Chinese government bonds either. You know, it's ridiculous. This whole thing, this whole, I don't understand how this is taken seriously. All right. Um, paraphrasing Forrest Gump. Let me go back to that. Uh, 
you can spend it on solar panels, wind turbines, data centers, telecommunications equipment, or space projects to create jobs. Or you can just recycle it at some bank or just convert it to good old gold bars. Money is as money does, and convertibility to gold beats convertibility to dollars. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. It does not beat convertibility to dollars. I mean, maybe in the future, but gold is dead. Gold is basically dead. Because why would you convert it to gold, and then you have to ship it around the world through pirate-infested future waters with the greatest naval superpower in the world hunting you, uh, and hunting your gold fleet, shipping these gold bars around, or you could use Bitcoin and send it anywhere in 10 minutes. So hell no, hell no. Convertibility to gold beats convertibility to dollars. Not today and not in, I mean, in the future maybe, but what if we back dollars by Bitcoin? It, it's never going to beat convertibility in dollars. You guys might have more to say. Let, let's, before I continue, Let's see if anybody's still listening to this. Oh, hey, guys. Um, I've been ranting on here now for an hour, and I said I didn't want to go over an hour. So uh, let's see. Should I continue reading? Hands up if you guys want me to continue with this Zoltan piece. Or just open the mic up, and do you guys have anything to say? We'll see if we can get some audience participation. If not, I will just keep reading. Okay, Photobox, raise your hand. BTC uh, Point, raise his hand. Any others? All right, I'm going to take those for votes for me to continue reading. <laughs> so, all right, here we go. Uh, I was on the Forrest Gump section. All right, uh, President Xi's three to five year horizon means that by 2025, the GCC may be paid in Remimbi for all of the oil and gas that they will be shipping east to China. Fourth, plumbing, uh, quote-unquote plumbing, references Xi's speech. Oh, my goodness. Uh, fourth, plumbing represents, smack myself, guys, smack, smack. Fourth, quote-unquote plumbing, references in Xi's speech add further gravity to the above. When was the last time you heard a head of state talk about swap lines and central bank digital currencies? And not just any CBDC, but a specific one, the CBDC bridge project. The CBDC bridge product, or as the BIS likes to refer it, Project Bridge. It's actually, actually Project M Bridge, M, like lowercase m capital B Bridge, uh, Project M Bridge, is a masterclass in plumbing undertaken by the PBOC. A masterclass by those super, super brilliant communists that they are so brilliant, they are going to centrally plan us into the utopian future, those beautiful Marxist-Leninists. They know exactly what to do, and we don't have to worry about anything. This great and wonderful <laughs> CBDC plumbing. It's going to be so good, guys. The Bank of Thailand and the Hong Kong Monetary Authority and the Central Bank of the UAE. The project enables real-time, peer-to-peer, cross-border, and foreign exchange transactions using CBDCs and does so without involving the U.S. dollar or the network 
of Western correspondent banks that the U.S. dollar system runs on. Pretty interesting, no? <laughs> oh, my goodness. I mean, it sounds like a scam coin, guys. It sounds like like we've been hearing this stuff from Ripple for how many years? <laughs> they have this architecture that they're going. you can send peer-to-peer, blah, 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 blah. Of course, it's not peer-to-peer. There's nothing. CBDCs are a scam. They're a scam. They're not, they're not peer-to-peer. They're not decentralized. They don't work the way they say. And the thing that Zoltan believes it, Zoltan believes this. Literally, he believes that these things are revolutionary, that we need to blockchain more things, guys. DLT is the answer. Zoltan believes this. You have to, if that's true, you got to question everything that this guy believes. Because it's so outlandishly dumb. <laughs> okay. Uh, in a very Uncle Sam-like fashion, China wants more of the GCC's oil, wants to pay for it with RMB, and wants the GCC to accept ERMB on the M. CBDC bridge platform. So don't hesitate. Join the M bridge fast train. Oh, good Lord. Dude, why don't they just use Venmo, man? Come on. Or, I mean, they could use anything. They could use any traditional digital payment system. Like it does, it's, okay. So do you know how Russia got around being taken off of SWIFT because you, you know what SWIFT is. is just a message protocol, right? It's just a message protocol. So they would just call banks on the phone and just tell them in this message protocol. Like that's how they got around being off SWIFT. It, it was just like one more step or one step removed. You don't need all this elaborate stuff. And that's not even to mention Bitcoin, okay? Not even to mention Bitcoin. We're, we're talking about the why it's so stupid just from a regular standpoint, not even a Bitcoin adoption standpoint. It's just dumb. You can do it today. Why can't you just make a, a send a message between banks today? Why do you need a CBDC token? Why do you need this architecture and blockchain and to calling it this all these different things? It's silly. But also the big thing behind a CBDC is that it's a different form of money. A CBDC, it's true MMT. It's MMT incarnate here is what CBDCs are. And we don't have an MMT system today. We have credit-based money where money is created in the process of making a loan. A CBDC is straight up fiat. It's different money. And Okay, would you trust these countries, you know, the Sunnis that have slave labor and fund ISIS and the CCP that has concentration camps of Muslims and they're, they're doing deals with Muslims, these Sunnis, you think that you trust these governments to not print more CBDC tokens? It's, it's ridiculous. Do you trust them not to track you? To have some sort of, um, what's the term when you create a law and then it's it's retroactive? You think that there's not going to be like some sort of 
uh, retroactive ability with these CBDCs to seize people's property, to freeze things. You think Xi Jinping is going to want to put his system at the hands of Saudi? No, hell no. It's going to be, you use my CCP system and we will control everything you do. And if you want to change it into gold on the Shanghai uh, exchange, that's fine. But that gold stays in Shanghai, buddy. There's no way that this is going to happen. No way. Anyway, okay, let's continue. Uh, Here we are. And finally, President Xi's reference to, quote, currency swap cooperation, end quote, reminded me of using swap lines as analogs of the Lend-Lease Agreement, whereby the U.S. lent dollars to Britain to buy arms to fight Germany during World War II. Now we fight climate change. And if you don't earn RMB to build NEOM, whatever that acronym means, no problem at all. We can swap our local currency for your local currency, whereby I lend you some RMB and then you can buy the stuff you need. And when you will start selling me oil for RMB, you can pay off the swap lines. All I care about is that you don't pay for imports from me in U.S. dollars because I have enough U.S. dollars already and I don't want to add to my sanctions risk. All right. Buy Bitcoin then. (laughs) Uh, The CBDC bridge product offers, offers further leads down the monetary rabbit hole. I don't understand why when I first read about Russia requesting oil payments from India in UAE Durham's, but now I do. Durham's appeal to Russia because the central bank of the UAE is a member of the CBDC bridge. And so Durham's can be sold for RMB using central bank digital currencies and thus away from the Western banking system. This does not necessarily have to go through the CBDC bridge project per se, but the existence of it implies that some CBDCs are already interlinked to facilitate interstate payments off the Western system. So he has a good quote here that um, this does not necessarily have to go through the CBDC bridge. Okay, well, it won't because the CBDC bridge is going to be too controlled. Too controlled. And if you don't know if it is already, that means it's not transparent. And these governments definitely would not agree to non-transparency like this. Like everybody thinks that these other governments are going to like, it's only the U.S. government and Brussels that wants to be in your business, right? That wants to control where your payments go and know everything about your payments and all of this stuff. They totally forget about China and their social credit system. So these countries, they're they're pretty much all the same. They're going to want, it's not going to be private. All of these countries are going to know where everything else goes if it's a CBDC, guaranteed. Or if it's a Chinese CBDC, maybe China will know where everything goes and other people will have to uh, be colonies of this Chinese system. But anyway, let's continue here. Do take a step back and consider that since the beginning of this year, 2022, Russia has been selling oil to China for RMB. Okay, great. What what has that accomplished? Does that make it petro yuan? No. 
and to India for UAE Durhams. India and the UAE are work, working on settling oil and gas trades in Durhams by 2023. And China is asking the GCC to fully utilize Shanghai's exchanges to settle all oil and gas sales to China in RMB by 2025. That's the dusk for the petrodollar. Okay, great. Well, the petrodollar didn't really exist in the first place, but th this doesn't mean anything. What has happened, okay, in that time? Let's just take their word for it here. 2022, all this stuff happened. What happened to the value of the dollar? It went up. So if they continue to do this, it'll go up more because they'll need it more because there's more risk in the system. They're introduced by using more types of money. You increase you increase exchange risk for one. You also increase political risk. Like what happens if you are forming this new fledgling coalition of all these countries and then one of the countries backstabs you, you know, or they lose, they have some sort of uh, revolution and they throw off the old government and this, this country backstabs you and they're members of the CBDC. Now you're screwed. There's risk involved heavily. I mean, there's risk involved with staying with the old system too, but much less than going to a new system. It's not, it's not dusk for it. Well, I would say that he says the petrodollar. I would say no one cares about the petrodollar. You know, the same way that you're biting off on the, uh, the beautiful utility of CBDCs, you're biting off on the fake old story of the petrodollar. I mean, I'm not saying that th these agreements weren't signed. I'm saying that those agreements didn't affect the dominance of the dollar. The dominance of the dollar is completely separate from the petrodollar that people talk about. So when, when you want to, I, I don't know, I just, I just can't understand this. So if you're the Saudi government and you have all these USTs, US treasuries, and now you're going to have treasuries of other countries. I mean, that just sounds very risky. You know, what are you going to do? Get some Chinese government bonds, get some Russian government bonds with 20% inflation over there in Russia um, or South African or Brazilian government bonds instead of tre U.S. treasuries. You know, there's a reason why they have the U.S. treasuries. It's not because of the petrodollar recycling system. It's because the U.S. treasuries are more secure. Not to bash on anybody from Brazil, okay? They're a BRICS country, right? Imagine wanting to hold a Brazilian government bond instead of a United States treasury. You have to be crazy, you know? You'd have to be absolutely crazy. It increases the risk of everything. And now you put this, now what, now, okay. Not only that, <laughs> but you put them in opposition to the greatest military the, the world has ever seen that can block down all of your trade lanes. So not only is it inherently in the best case, really risky. But in the worst case, you start a war with the United States. I mean, it's crazy, guys. This is just uh, any way you want to peel this onion. It does not make sense what Zoltan is saying here. All right, um, let's continue. The dawn of the Petro Yuan. Now on the topic of commodity encumbrance. In money and banking, the word encumbrance is typically used 
in the context of transactions involving collateral. If collateral is pledged to a specific trade, it's referenced as encumbered, which means it can be it can't be used to do other trades. If encumbrance becomes extreme, collateral gets scarce, which typically shows up as interest rates on scarce pieces of collateral trading deeply below the OIS rates. Under Bretton Woods 3, a system in which commodities are collateral, encumbrance means that commodities can get scarce in certain parts of the world, and that scarcity shows up as inflation, printing far above inflation targets. To see that encumbrance to see what encumbrance means in the context of the oil and gas markets today, let's start with the geographic scope of OPEC plus, that is OPEC plus Russia. All right, that's the only, that's the last of what I have here to read. Yeah, so I don't know what you guys have to think about or had to say about that, what you guys think. I know my views are extreme. <laughs> my views are extreme, but Zoltan is an idiot. Okay, opening it up now for anybody to make their comments, maybe ask a question over on Telegram. But this one, I was all over the place. Going once, going twice. All right. Well, guys, thanks for joining me. This is Thursday, one more day of the week. I'll be doing a live stream tomorrow, and then we're on to the new year. So I hope you guys have plans for the new year. Um and that's going to do it. If you're listening on the podcast app, bitcoinandmarkets.com, follow me on Twitter at Ansel Lindner and join the telegram t.me forward slash Bitcoin and markets. All right, guys, we'll see you tomorrow. Bye.